Stories, awakening, possibility, social impact. Creating a culture of compassion, connection, and collaboration. You are listening to Hollyhock Talks, a podcast about the teachers and luminaries that make Hollyhock extraordinary. Hollyhock is Canada's leading leadership learning centre, located on Cortez Island. Hollyhock Talks brings a little piece of Hollyhock magic to you, wherever you are listening. This is Farah of Hollyhock Talks, and I'm very honored to be here with Mirabai Starr, an interspiritual teacher and author who speaks nationally and internationally about the wisdom of the mystics and contemplative practice. I'm very excited also that she has a new book that's coming out called Wild Mercy, which is about women mystics across all spiritual traditions. And we're here to talk specifically about her program at Hollyhock, Spiritual Promiscuity, the Bodhisattva Path. Thank you, Farah. It's, it's a joy to be with you. And I'm so excited about being able to offer this um, experience at Hollyhock. And I say experience because uh, I'm not really a top-down kind of teacher that holds forth as if I have some kind of, um, I don't know, commodity of wisdom to dispense. It's, it's very much my, my way of, of teaching and being with people is very much about building community and drawing out the wisdom of all the beings who gather. And I'll tell you, everywhere I go, whether in person or online, <clears throat> the wisdom of the people who gather around me just continues to blow my mind. The title is so provocative and juicy. Tell us a little bit about the intention behind the title. Well, you know, it was when I was I was talking with the team at Hollyhock and kind of describing what I do, and I I said, you know, I've always been kind of spiritually promiscuous. We we call the path that I'm on interspiritual, but it carries this element of of the erotic. Like for me, the relationship with the great mystery, with the sacred, has always been both deeply personal, devotional, and also non-dual. You know, it's also been about dissolving the separate self into the one. But the, the language of lover, beloved, has always really spoken to me. There's this kind of intimacy for me in finding the sacred everywhere I look, you know, that, so this whole, um, phrase spiritually promiscuous comes from the way I've often described myself as being spiritually promiscuous in that I say, I'll lie down with any God who will have me. <laughs> Isn't that so needed in our world where there are so many divisions between paths and traditions? Yeah. I mean, in some ways I feel like, this is the evolutionary trajectory that that the institutionalized religions are not really holding up. I mean, that that is not to say that they don't each contain vast treasures. And I'm and I'm deeply grateful that there are people in each of the spiritual traditions who are holding 
the heart of those traditions. I, I refer to those people as the keepers of the jewels, and they are deeply needed. Um, however, I think in general, organized religion, institu institutionalized religions are not really appealing to people anymore, uh, to many, many people. And yet, there is this deep hunger for profound spiritual experience. It's not like people have become too shallow for religion. It's that they're, they're not finding the depth of spiritual experience that they long for in the, in the religions as they have existed and been handed down so far. And so, but people are finding those jewels, that richness of experience when they tap into multiple spiritual spaces, interestingly enough. This deep spiritual hunger and longing, um, how important is that in terms of um, opening our hearts? You know, how, how interconnected is longing with the experiences of union? Beautiful, beautiful question, Farah. You totally get it. I mean, that's just it. And that's why the mystics of all traditions speak in paradox. You know, the paradox of the, like Rumi, the, <clears throat> the great Persian poet, medieval Persian poet Rumi, who, who in so many different ways across his poetry says, the longing is the answer. Your secret, your secret cup that longs for the beloved is instantaneously filled with love the moment your heart cries out in yearning for the one. And so the, there's this beautiful tapestry of, of paradox in, in the mystical path, and we see it especially in the poetry of the mystics. So even in what I'm saying, it's like I'm asserting this kind of polyamorous um, approach to spirituality where I fall in love with and cultivate intimate relationship with the mystery with the one in multiple spiritual spaces. And yet really I'm completely monogamous because my love, it, it's like a, a devotion to the one that transcends all forms. And I refuse to allow my beloved to be confined in any one um, religious sphere. So, so yes, I'm like, radically monogamous but it's expressed in this kind of polyamory toward all of the religions but not toward the source of love itself the one that i refer to as my beloved now you've been you were you know i've heard from reading your bio that you were born interspiritual in terms of your family background and history how has your understanding of the one changed over the years and what's different in how you understand God or the divine today and now? Yeah, that's, that's a, a good question. Um, I wrote about this in my, I finally wrote a memoir after many years of, of translating the mystics and writing books about the mystics. I finally kind of wrote my own story because it's true that it, I grew up in an unusual way uh, in the counterculture of the 1970s, where my parents kind of uprooted us from suburban lifestyle, and and we moved to the 
um, mountains of Taos, New Mexico, which was and still is, I still live here, very much a kind of interspiritual center in that all of the, the, the world's religions were somehow very alive and still are here. And many teachers from different traditions, East and West and indigenous all gathered here. And so I was exposed to all of these different spiritual paths as being equally valid and equally true. And that really formed my consciousness and it infused my heart with this openness to the presence of the sacred everywhere. And so it's only been, you know, in my adult life that I've had to, to face the fact that that's not true for everybody, <laughs> that not everybody is one of each. And yet, interestingly, speaking of paradox, my family was pretty much atheist. I mean, they were culturally Jewish, but they rejected organized religion completely for, on social justice grounds in that they felt that that institutionalized religions were responsible for for great suffering in this world. But I, I always felt like they threw the baby of mist, mystical love out with the bathwater of organized religion. And so I guess um, that part has grown deeper and deeper for me over, over the years, the, the mystical connection and how that leads to right back to what my parents were most interested in, which was social justice. Because for me, the contemplative life, the inner life, can't help but uh, inform the way we are in the world. It's like cultivating the garden of the inner life produces this bounty with which we we have this urge to um, to feed, to heal, to uh, to soothe, to listen listen deeply to the cries of the world and then discern a path to act on behalf of, of the suffering world, whether it's the human community living on the margins or the earth herself who is in such peril. And, and how important is keeping those two in balance in terms of inner and contemplative practice and outer and engagement is it possible to, I mean, is there, um, do they hold each other together in a sense? You, you are a yogi. You, you know that one well, right? But <laughs> I, cultivating that um, awareness of intending of the body is essential to, well, that the, that the, contemplative presence that is required in a yoga practice is not just about having a nice practice and then going back into the world and getting lost. It's about how do we bring that presence, that integration of body, mind, and heart into our work in the world so that we can be effective and act in compassion and not burn out. I mean, that's thing is all so many people I love and grew up with including my own family members you know ha have become burned out through their very good will to make a difference in this world but lacking uh I mean they had an openness to the two other religions certainly weren't judgmental about them but they didn't actually enter into the heart 
of these great spiritual traditions and find the the medicine, the elixir there that is transformational, that is energizing, that enables us to uh, take what what we learn from growing still and quiet on purpose when the world is demanding us to engage in the noise and the clatter and the chaos and the divisiveness of the the cultural conversation. But what happens when we intentionally stop, stop consuming, stop making, stop fixing, and including fixing ourselves, and allow ourselves to be fully present with what is. I find that from that space of cultivating presence, we are able to listen to what needs to be done and to do it without being so attached, as Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, to the fruits of our actions or to our own opinions on the matter or to those kind of dualistic concepts we come up with of the bad people who are perpetrating harm and we the good guys who are going to somehow, against all odds, make it right. Like that dualistic mind begins to soften when we, when we have a contemplative practice, when we have a yoga practice, when we have a practice of being in nature in a quiet contemplative way. These are the spaces that remind us that everything we think isn't necessarily true. Mm-hmm. Well, you just answered the question I was going to ask, but I'll ask it anyway, because there might be more that you'll be able to offer insight on. And that is, what are the various techniques or interspiritual practices that you uh, share with people that help them to enter into the heart of what's part of any spiritual practice? Well, silent sitting practice is one of the most reliable and universal ways that we access that space of presence and intimacy with the beloved. Um, Another really important practice for me is mystical poetry, the poetry of the mystics of all traditions, because that kind of poetry, and in many ways, all poetry is mystical poetry if it's good. You know, it doesn't have to subscribe to any particular religious um, tradition in order to be what I would consider to be transformational mystical poetry about about and dedicated to the lover-beloved relationship. But there's something about poetry that not only describes the wisdom and the and the love relationship, but it evokes it. Right When you read a great poem by a great mystic, even just lines of poetry from Rumi or from my, my namesake Mirabai, who, who speaks about the, the partridge that swallows hot coals for love of the moon. I mean, that, that phrase doesn't describe love longing it stirs that love, I think, in our own hearts. And so poetry for me is a profound spiritual practice. Also writing. Writing, um, I, I do a lot of writing exercises with people that are very simple prompts that are so powerful. It just They just sort of blast open the gates of the heart 
and people very quickly begin to have a transformational experience. And then finally, not finally, but it's only because I don't want to talk forever, I would say chanting is the other most powerful experience for me. Um, chanting sacred singings in all spiritual traditions. So I I play a, an instrument, a um, shruti box, which is a like a harmonium without the, the keyboard, uh, an Indian drone instrument. And I... I do chants with people from Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, various native and, and indigenous traditions, um, Christian mysticism, mystical Judaism, and that there's nothing like music, especially sacred music, to also break down or dissolve those, those walls around the heart and allow us to melt into the one. Mm -hmm. I completely agree about chanting and music. It is such an exceptional practice to open the heart and create a such a subtle and beautiful vibration that people can so tangibly feel. Mm -hmm. Yes. So Tell us a little bit about the path of the Bodhisattva for people who might not know what is a Bodhisattva and what is that path? Right. So the Bodhisattva is, um, is a phrase that comes from the Buddhist tradition, from the Mahayana Buddhist tradition, that is about the being, which I think is all of us, potentially anyway, who comes to the brink of liberation, of being, of waking up, of enlightenment, of being freed from what's called in, in Buddhism samsara, the, the um, illusion of separation. And that person who comes to the brink of that degree of absorption in the one, or enlightenment, or awakening, opts decides, chooses to return to the wheel of births and rebirths, which is another way of describing samsara, to this place of suffering, of suffering and working it out, you know, and, and just says, I am going to stay right here until all sentient beings are free, until every last blade of grass is awakened. And it's such a beautiful vow, it's the bodhisattva vow that Buddhists take, that they will forego their own liberation for the sake of all beings. And the reason that I'm combining these two things, spiritual promiscuity and the bodhisattva path, is that they naturally uh, feed and and... Um, empty into and out of each other in the sense that when we say yes to that love relationship with the sacred, when we intentionally cultivate love longing and let ourselves down into those fleeting but not uncommon moments of divine union when we momentarily forget our sense of separateness and dissolve, whether it's into a sunset or another person we're making love with, or a baby that, that we're taking care of 
It doesn't have to be a, a religious um, activity that that triggers or catalyzes that state of dissolving our separate self. But when we have those moments of exquisite union that are often hand in hand with, with longing, then the natural outflow of that experience of the interconnectedness of all that is rooted in love is, is an inspiration, not an inspiration, it is an imperative then in our souls often to stand up and speak for those who have no voice and tend our mother the earth with every fiber of our of our energy because we get viscerally spiritually cellularly that everything is in, interconnected and it is all rooted in love Well, <laughs> that was so beautifully said, and I really am not sure where to go now. But let me take a minute because there was so much to your answer that I'm sure there's a little more weaving we can do together here. One of the words that you used in describing the bodhisattva path was the word emptying. And how is union connected to emptying? Yeah, it's it's more of that paradox that infuses the the mystical path, the path of the mystics because the what happens when we dive deep into that dualistic experience of lover longing for union with beloved and that, that, that yearning itself opens our hearts and that heart opening itself is like a fire that softens and actually dissolves and melts the boundaries that separate us from the object of our longing. And so when Buddhism, for instance, speaks about emptiness, shunyata, that term is, is so um, easily misunderstood by the Western consciousness that thinks of emptiness as being barren and being some kind of wasteland. But in Buddhism, it simply means empty of obstacles, empty of concepts, empty of those kinds of constructs that we set up artificially to rein in um, and control our reality. And when we recognize, for instance, the interconnectedness of all that is, that web of interbeing, we, all, all those obstacles dissolve and we rest in a kind of emptiness that paradoxically is plenitude. It's luminous, it's overflowing, but it's empty of artificial constructs that separate us from the source um, that we long for. So I'm kind of mixing mixing all my spiritual traditions here, you know, because Buddha's is non <laughs> and I keep coming back to this this lover beloved thing. And yet all the Buddhists I know and love totally get the lover beloved thing. Yes. Yes, that there's different um, 
different ways of using language that describe the same experience. That's right, exactly. And that's what we'll be doing, you know, in this gathering is just celebrating all the, the rich diversity of love languages that speak to the same heart experience and how that heart experience can be activated on behalf of all beings, including the earth herself. And we, we have a lot of fun, you know, it's, it's, we build community, we sing, we, we sit in silence, we write, we read, we, we um, explore the poetry of the mystics, we have deep dialogue. There's a lot of, um, a, a lot of very, it, it's not me lecturing, although I love to lecture, because I've spent a lot of time studying and translating it, these mystical texts, but it's it's very much an interactive experience, experiential, community-oriented uh, exploration of the path of love. Because you mentioned the book that is probably quite forefront in your heart now, is there a little taste that you can offer us? from Wild Mercy. You mean like a, a reading from Wild Mercy? Anything. <laughs> um, oh, I am having such a good time writing this book and it is very lyrical and poetic and and personal and and juicy. I'm just I'm actually editing it so I'm really getting into the the fine um, the music of the words now. But really I think what I'm discovering is how subversive the women mystics are really? how yeah how every one of them that i love and admire across the spiritual traditions including some of the goddesses by the way not just the you know the embodied people but but the wisdom beings like tara and kuan yin and kali and sophia that they're they all are about disrupting the kind of dominant patriarchal paradigm and and just uh, turning it uh, turning it around and and making it so much more about being in our bodies, present with our experience, in relationship with one another, rather than some kind of uh, ladder to perfection that takes us up and out of this world as if there's something uh, broken and wrong, you know. Here with being in these bodies, in these in these relationships, in these communities. So the feminine brings us right back into the messy, wild center of it all and blesses all that is. And, and the masculine paradigm has been so much about trying to either fix it or transcend it. And so all these, these great women mystics were just messing it all up, turning it all over and, and challenging <laughs> it. I love it. It sounds pretty wild. I'll be bringing that to, you know, what I do at Hollyhocks. I can't help it. It's just infusing me right now. Mm -hmm. You know, if there's one thing that you hope people will take from your program at Hollyhock, what would that be? Uh, a deep sense of your own heart connection to the sacred mystery that you will reclaim love longing as your birthright rather than as as some kind of 
um, illusion to get over, but actually infuse that fire of love and, and fan those flames so that they, they take over your life and, and become the, the energy with which you, you go forth and do what needs to be done, that you can step up with that flame in your hands and offer it to warm the cold heart of this world. You know, it's really wonderful to hear you speak because even the way that you speak is very poetic and lyrical. Mm, thank you, Farah. It's been such a pleasure to listen and be with you and hear the experiences that you'll um, take share with people at Hollyhock and... Um, it's been such a such a delight. Well, thank you for me too. I I know that you get it and that you live it as well. So next time I get to interview you, okay? Stories, awakening, possibility, social impact. Creating a culture of compassion, connection, and collaboration. You are listening to Hollyhock Talks, a podcast about the teachers and luminaries that make Hollyhock extraordinary. Hollyhock is Canada's leading leadership learning centre, located on Cortez Island. Hollyhock Talks brings a little piece of Hollyhock magic to you, wherever you are listening. <laughs>